Larry who? Never heard of her. What sort of a man is he? Dick from Bama. A man like any other, but more so. Well, I thought he was dead. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Let's light this candle. All right, welcome into the Larry Alex Taunton Podcast. <laughs> How are you? See, I like that because we both have double names. Yes. Yes, we do. So, okay. Are you watching what's going on with Elon? Yeah, I thought it's kind of interesting that, you know, when all this started with Elon Musk trying to buy Twitter, a, a good morning, by the way. Good morning. <laughs> it's good to see you. <laughs> um, when all this started with him trying to buy Twitter, how long do you suppose it's been now? A couple of months ago? Yes. Six months, six weeks ago? Yeah. Whenever it was, you know, I tweeted, be prepared. He's about to become the new Donald Trump. And you were prescient. I mean, because, you know, I'm sure I wasn't in that. There are probably loads of other people who are thinking that. But meaning that the left was going to start attacking him. And now, did you see his latest his latest tweet yes. about, about the way he plans to vote? I mean, when did the red pill moment happen? <laughs> this is the question. Explain to people a red pill. What's a red pill? Well, I mean, if you're a movie person and you saw, now it's escaping me. What's the name of the movie with the red pill? I, you know, I don't know. Do you guys know what the red pill is? You have any idea what the red pill movie is? It is some like Matrix or Keanu something. Keanu Reeves, it? right? And so yeah, okay, he takes a red pill Matrix. or the blue That's pill. That's what it is. It's Matrix. And so when he takes a red pill, it happens one way, blue pill the other way. And so we're often saying these days that people are having their red pill moment, whether it's a high price at the gas pump or eggs that are so expensive. You're yes. like, what's going on? And now Elon <laughs> politically seems to be having a red pill moment. Yes. What do you think? Yeah, well, he's he tweeted that he won't vote for Democrats anymore. He's going to, um, you know, he's going to vote Republican from now on, and hopefully that doesn't mean like rhinos, you know, Republican in name only. Some of those Republicans who aren't, you know, aren't aren't actually conservative. But it's interesting because he has gone from characterizing himself, I don't know, maybe two months ago on Twitter as uh, leaning left. Yes. To he's he's almost full he's almost wearing a MAGA hat now. <laughs> I mean, so. Should we send him one? <laughs> Just like you're welcome from your friends in the South. You know, and of course the whole make America great again stuff, as much as Trump wants to say that, you know, he kind of invented that ideology, the reality is it's just it's just long um, historic um, Reagan conservatives. Right. You know, it, it Barry Goldwater, you know, it goes well before the you know the the MAGA hat wearing crowd. It it it's it's long uh, long before that, and it will it will go long long past him. But anyway, but it is funny because uh, to see Elon Musk now as this guy who is you know who's coming off uh, every day as uh, much more of a conservative is fascinating to me, and it's because he's being attacked by the left viciously. So now they're saying, um, I'm, I'm, frankly, I'm shocked. I mean, I'm sure you didn't see this coming either, that here he is championing free speech. <laughs> and what do you know? A woman comes forward and says he exposed himself to me, and uh, I don't know if she's claiming sexual harassment or, or not, but I was paid off to remain silent. I mean, there's going to be waves of stories like this because this is the way the left works. They, they don't want to deal with your argument. They want to destroy you. That's right. You know, and we exist in a podcast like this 
we exist um, to do what the Apostle Paul talks about. In writing to the Corinthians, he says, we demolish arguments and every stronghold, pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. I am about the demolition of arguments, not the demolition of people. Um, that's not the way the left works. We don't care about your argument. We don't actually care about truth. We want to destroy you. We're going to come after you personally. And it is interesting that they do destroy. Their path behind them is one of destruction. And I'm not sure if that will swing people who are big Elon Musk fans to make them stop and consider, hey, if this is happening to him, the richest guy on the planet right now, um, could this happen to me? I don't know. But I think it is interesting that they are literally trying to obliterate him. And I do wonder how often it will happen that these stories of, you know, exposure or I don't even know what else is going to come out, but it's going to come out and it's not going to stop. Um, but on a side note, though, I do wonder for all the Tesla drivers, uh, how many of them might feel the need to turn their keys over, <laughs> uh, you know, and unplug and find something else to champion? Um, because this also ruins what they say they believe in because he's different than they are. Um, but the explain that uh, um, that's interesting. Uh, explain what you mean by that. Well, because I feel like um, when you're driving a Tesla, when you're driving something that's electric, you are suggesting that you believe in green energy and you believe in this whole new green new deal that's happening. So when the guy who invented this technology, who's sending people to space with SpaceX comes out and says, I'm not one of you because we could probably say that there are more liberals that would drive a, an electric car. Yeah. I'm just gotcha. suggesting. And then he, he subverts their paradigm. I'm not one of you anymore. I'm different. Well, then what do we do? What we're clutching our pearls and saying, what? Yeah. This is not who I thought he was. Yeah. And, and, and it's because he, for so long, he was kind of silent about his political opinions. So they could kind of color him in whatever political shade they wanted yes. him to be. And, um, and so he could be loved by all people. Now that he's come out with uh, actual opinions on politics, um, now the lines are being drawn very sharply. You're seeing the left attack him in a very big way. But I don't even just mean, you know, on, uh, you know, in mainstream media. I mean, just people on the left on, you know, just your average Twitter users, mm -hmm. Facebook, they're going after him now in a big way, too. So that's been very, very interesting um, to watch um, because Elon Musk, whether he should be in or not, is, a, is, is another question for another day. But he has now become the face of conservatism, you know, really. And um He's certainly not a social conservative. He's not a believer. You know, he's not a Christian. Um, I, I don't know that he's declared himself an atheist, maybe an agnostic. But anyway, it is interesting because he is increasingly becoming, again, he's the new Donald Trump. The left has to destroy him. And so they're trying to. And I think it's interesting and very important to point out that as a believer, we want to demolish the argument, not the person. And so I hope that people notice that there's a very big difference between those two things. Yeah. Uh, it's also why people are afraid to disagree on Twitter because they don't know how to come against an argument. They know that they're going to get destroyed no matter what they do. Um, if it's a leftist idea, they're yeah. going to destroy you as a person. And that's terrifying. 
Um, and so I think as believers, we have an opportunity to point that out and then demolish the argument without destroying a person and then possibly win people over that way yeah. um, because their dignity is intact. Yeah, I, uh, I agree with you. And um, this, th- th- there's going to be a lot more to see yeah. um, in this way. I, I think we're at the front end mm-hmm. of what, of, of the transformation of Elon Musk. I think we're going to see this guy go through a massive political, personal um, evolution um, over the course of the next many months and and years. And hopefully that's a positive one. Right now I read it positively. I see it in a very positive way. Um, I hope people won't abandon him as some of it probably authentic. You know, dirt is brought forward. I mean, everybody has it. And the left is now searching to find anything, anything they can about it. I'm waiting for Amber Heard to accuse him. (laughs) (laughs) You know, he dated her. Did he really? Yes, he did. Larry, the keeper of interesting information. Yes, well, he did. It's uh, it's fascinating. During the uh, you know, shortly after her breakup with Johnny Depp, she started dating him. And I'm thinking, why is it that highly intelligent men can make these kinds of stupid mistakes? You don't have to answer that question. <laughs> I'm just I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying that it's it's actually a pattern. Yeah, it's a real thing. So I'm waiting to see her go from one trial. To the net, you know, the left want to use her to say he's an abuser, he's a rapist, he's a, you know, whatever. Um, I saw, you know, that 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 he actually is, uh, you know, something awful and wicked. Who knows? But I think you're going to start seeing a parade of women being brought forward, employees, um, accusations of racism. There, that's already happened. Um, that he doesn't care about the environment. Somebody saw, you know, e- Elon, you know, uh, you know, flip a cigarette butt, you know, onto uh, onto a playground. I mean, th- this is all coming in in waves. So just set your, you know, your alarms on uh, your your search engines. You know, what is it? That what's called Google Alerts. <laughs> set your Google Alert to Elon Musk <laughs> and scandal because there's going to be loads of accusations of scandal, and I hope people stand by him. I do too. And I hope people realize that if you have to destroy somebody, your argument is quite fragile. Yes. Uh, so please, let's get the popcorn. There we go. And uh, stay That's, tuned. We should have some right here. <laughs> we really should. Popcorn's delicious. Okay, so the next delightful bit of information in regards to Twitter. Yes. Is that Jordan Peterson suspended his account. Yeah, I was disappointed to see that. I actually didn't follow Jordan Peterson, but I like Jordan Peterson and he did um, because he was uh, he was attacked for some comments he made. He did. What what did he say? So Sports Illustrated puts out an iconic <laughs> cover every year. I've never heard of it. <laughs> I mean, you have no idea, right? Yes. Allow me to explain. Um, but he made the comment that because of their new cover model, who is obese, she's beautiful, but she's obese. He said that's not beautiful, um, and the outrage was instant. Uh, immediate and because of the commentary he just suspended his account yeah this is the um you know full full um what what do i want to say disclosure um the this was a sports illustrated swimsuit issue which they put out every year and um it's very funny because i i think of i could i could think of a very funny little sitcom episode about a bunch of pubescent boys in my in my middle school. Excuse me. This is 
This is not a bomb going off, um, though it, it does look like it, but it actually isn't. Uh, it's a timer, and I don't know why I had set it to, um, to that. But anyway, I, I, could, I could write a very funny little sketch about a bunch of pubescent boys um, in my middle school who um, always around this time of year were trying to get into the library to see the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And, um, you know, of course, that's a space that has been, whatever you think of the swimsuit edition, whether or not there should be one, that's a whole separate debate and discussion. I'm not going there. But that is a space that has been traditionally reserved for beautiful women. So Sports Illustrated, because they're under pressure from the political powers that be who are trying to redefine absolutely everything, caved to the pressure that said, we need to celebrate uh, a fad is beautiful too. And so Jordan Peterson wasn't simply just throwing out a comment um, about, hey, you know, I, who, who can believe, you know, this chick is on, on the cover. That wasn't what he said. Peterson said that, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, but he said that um, this is an effort by the political elites to redefine beauty because they think that your notions of beauty and my notions of beauty are nurture rather than nature. And he says they're wrong. Science demonstrates that what we think regarding beauty is actually, uh, it's, it's nature. You're born with innate ideas of what beauty actually is and you respond to it accordingly. And he says, but they don't recognize that. They believe that um, what, we, what we think about a woman's role or a man's role, none of that is innate. What we think about sexuality, none of that is innate. It can all be demolished and redefined by them. And Peterson said, this just simply isn't so. Now, he was immediately attacked. Now, I wish he had put it like this, because really what Jordan Peterson immediately recognized what he was saying. It's, it's you know, Plato actually talked about this, and I'm not trying to get, you know, too academic and, and, and too, too deep here, but Plato talked about something that he called forms and ideals so that he would say that for every, uh, we don't have any flowers here, but for instance, for every object that you see in this world, in our reality, it's fallen, it's a fallen version, a less perfect version of its ideal, of its perfect thing that is out there in some other um, universe. So everything in this life has a, has a perfect equivalent somewhere else um, because our world is fallen. Now, you can understand why the medieval philosophers and theologians, you know, Dante didn't want to put, you know, the Greek philosophers in hell because they never, you know, Plato, you know, pre-existed Jesus by almost 400 years. And so for Plato, uh, that is Jesus's earthly ministry. Don't try to correct me and say, well, you know, he was, he was always here. Anyway, um, they had a hard time, you know, putting them there because in their minds, they thought, boy, these guys took natural revelation as far as they could take it. I mean, they're this close to being Christians. And they referred to them as pre-Christian Christians. So Plato was, was talking about this whole idea that everything has fallen, and it ha no matter how perfect um, a flower appears to be, or a sunset, or a tree, or a woman, um, 
it's still an imperfect version of the perfect version before the fall. This is what Jordan Peterson was actually saying. So he was actually making an academic point. But unfortunately, people immediately interpreted that, and some willfully, they just want to attack Jordan Peterson. They're like, ah, you're just a bigot. You just, this kind of thing. No, what he was saying is actually true. And let's also be clear. Unless there is something that's kind of broken in you, uh, and it does happen, we all have innate reactions to notions of beauty. You know, for instance, um, you know, uh, Kilimanjaro from afar, there's, there's hardly anybody who would look at Kilimanjaro and go, that's not breathtakingly beautiful. There's almost no one who, on the other side, who would think that a, a roach is anything other than repulsive. Right. So we have, we have innate reactions to these things, and that's what he was saying. It is a f- it, you're right. You're absolutely right. And we are so surface in our culture these days that we don't realize and recognize what he was saying because it's true. Um, but it offended people tremendously. Um, the idea that there is a standard. We, we don't like that. That there, I think as women, there's this pressure that there is a standard. But it's right that there is a standard. And it's right that there is a perfect ideal. And what we see in ourselves, instead of running to Christ and saying, I can't meet that standard, even in, in, even in, in beauty, um, we run away from it when we try to fix it ourselves. And we say, well, how dare we even have a standard at all? Um, but I, I love the argument that he made because it's right. Well, how about this? It's Let me true. ask you, as a, as a woman, how, how is this not an attack on how is this anything other than an attack on beautiful women? In other words, that space on the cover of Sports Illustrated is generally reserved for beautiful women. Sports Illustrated and the cultural elites who are, who are um, putting pressure on them said, nope, none of you women who have worked to stay in shape, who have watched your calories, who do your crunches, you know, or whatever it is, um, in order to be considered for something like that, we're not taking any of you. You're getting bumped out of that space. Um, I see this as as not an attack on you know big girls. I see this as a as as an attack on on pretty women. That's very interesting. I think that for the women that I had a daughter who modeled, and so I think you can appreciate it on that end that there are girls that work very very hard to get there and to stay there and to be bumped out is is upsetting and, and hard, but I do think that um, it is trying to subvert the paradigm of what is beautiful, and it would be offensive to women who consider themselves beautiful to say, well, you're not beautiful anymore. This is what's beautiful now, yeah. um, and so, okay, well, then if that's going to change, then what's going to be the next thing that's in style after this is not any longer beautiful yeah. because there's always something that comes next. But I agree that it could be seen as you're not beautiful anymore. And, um, and so then, then we get back to the question of the standard. What is the standard? And can we meet that standard? And is it wrong to have a standard? I don't believe that it is because I think we need a standard. Well, and the standard is, the standard is actually, it does exist and it's in its uniform and it's what Jordan Peterson was yeah, saying. Yeah, That, uh, you know, men are not rushing to get this issue of, you know, Sports Illustrated. Yes. They think that they can tell you it's beautiful and you will see it as beautiful because they told you to see it as beautiful. Right. But I think about, you know, our, our daughter, Sasha, 
um, she has worked as a model and they began saying that she wasn't right for this or for that because they were looking for someone who looked more gender neutral, mm. more um, ethnic neutral. You know, it, you know, so if she had looked where someone could, could look at her and go, gosh, I can't tell. What ethnicity is she? she Hispanic? She white? She black? Uh, she Asian? Um, or, you know, worse, uh, greatly offensive to her, is, is that a woman or is that a man? Mm. Then that meant she would, she would be slam dunk for loads of things. But because she was a very attractive, is a very attractive, um, a, quite obviously a woman, um, and, and a white woman, you know, Sasha's adopted. She's from, she's from Ukraine, so she's got that Maria Sharapova you know, kind of look about her. Um, nope, that's not what's in anymore. That's not what we need. Now, is that what's in with the with the general public, with average people? Well, of course it is. Right. But but the political pressures come along and say we can't use you um, for this anymore because now we have to move, you know, in another direction. There's something broken. There's something very warped. Yes. Um, in that. And by the way, I'm glad you mentioned this because see, this is intersectionality. It really is, isn't it? So um, intersectionality, we t- discussed in a very short you know, video that we've, we've put out there. But intersectionality is, a, um, is a, another name for what's called cultural Marxism. Cultural Marxism. So cultural Marxism is this idea that, um, that the way you subvert a society is that you invert everything that is is held dear by that society that's how you destroy a society so you know um marx said in the um the communist manifesto uh, he said that you have to destroy the family we have to destroy the family it's because in his mind the uh you know the family is this evil institution and it's it's marxist language where people are referring to things like patriarchy white supremacy um, you know, um, gender equality, sexual equality, reproductive rights, me too. All of these are versions of cultural Marxism, of intersectionality. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who champions these things, that they're Marxists or even, even know what it is that they're, they're championing. Often, they don't know exactly what it is that they're promoting. Um, and it's it. I'm sure the overwhelming majority of them don't see themselves as, you know, people who are coming in to destroy society. They're utopians who think that they're ushering in something that's better. But these ideas are subversive, and they're meant to turn everything on its head. So you think that marriage is a good thing? We're going to tell you it's a bad thing. You think marriage is between a man and a woman? We're going to see it's between a man and a man, uh, a woman and a woman. Uh, a, a throuple, um, a dog. We're we're going to say that. You think that beauty is this model? We're going to say it's that model. Um, you think that um, you know parenting looks like this? We're going to say it looks like that. So they're going to invert everything that you hold dear. And this this swimsuit model, um, that's what this is. This is cultural Marxism, and that was part of Jordan Peterson's point. He wasn't. It wasn't really a, so much a commentary that you know, that he was trying to attack this woman. And by the way, she knows very well she's heavy. She knows what she's doing. Right. And so does Sports Illustrated. So I really don't feel any real sympathy I with her with in you. that regard. She she decided to suit up in this, 
you know, bikini and get out there and, and, and show what she's got. She knew this was coming. She wanted, she wanted her, her moment of fame. She wanted that cover. That, that's, that's, it was to be predicted. But Jordan Peterson's comment wasn't about being mean. He wasn't trying to be mean. He's trying to say they're manipulating you. Mm. You know what? And let's pause right there because we need to revisit all of that and dive deeply into it because I think it would be extremely helpful for people to understand that language that's going on in culture right now. And even people who are believers who are adopting that language um, to, to stop um, and then to push back because that's the way I think. I mean, do you think that it can be yeah. solved? Uh, well, we'll save that for the other okay, side. <laughs> let's do. All right. We'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Welcome back into the Larry Taunton Podcast. So we're talking about intersectionality. And it is a very intriguing discussion because we're living in the middle of it. People are borrowing terms they don't really understand. um, Or they've been bombarded and they find themselves in what you were saying a minute ago off air. Oh, but that sounds so good. That's so nice. What does that mean? What does that term actually mean? Well, uh, you know, in a previous discussion, I told you I would call it atomization. I wouldn't call it intersectionality. Intersectionality is a deliberately academic, innocuous, harmless sounding word that your eyes begin to glaze over. You know, I'm not interested. This is boring. I don't want to hear, you know, a discussion, much less a podcast, a show on intersectionality. But intersectionality, again, is just another term for cultural Marxism. And the idea is to subvert what they call hegemonies, meaning power structures. So um, when I say atomization, I mean a, a, a breakdown of society into smaller and smaller parts. So we keep dividing it into power structures. And within those power structures, we define who are the oppressors and who are the oppressed. So... Uh, for instance, within society itself, it, white males are the oppressors. In that hegemony, white males are the oppressors. At the top of the pyramid are rich white males. They are oppressors. They are always oppressors. Men are oppressors, be they rich or not. They are oppressors in relationships with women. Um, white people are always oppressors when they're in, relation, in relationships within hegemonies with people of color. Uh, Americans are defined as, a perf- uh, as oppressors of, of non-Americans, particularly third world um, uh, people and uh, people of color. And you just keep going and going and going. And this is, this is Marxist because, again, bear in mind, Marx defined things economically. So you had the, you know, the, you had the bourgeoisie, you know, the, the aristocracy, you know, sitting at the top. And then you had beneath that the proletarians, the workers. And so his phrase, you know, workers of the world unite, it was about the oppressed, so-called, rising up against the oppressors. So what modern Marxists have done is said, hmm, let's apply that model, that hegemony, to not just economics, let's apply it to race, let's apply it to nationality, let's apply it to um, sex, let's apply it to... um, uh, to marriage, you know, so you're an, oppre- you're an oppressed within your marriage because your marriage is a patriarchy. You know, your husband, Chris, he's, uh, um, he's an, op- whether you know it or not, we're, I'm informing you. Thank the you Marxists so much. would say, I want to liberate you. You need to <laughs> rise up against him. Mm. 
uh, my wife needs to rise up against me. So it's not just workers of the world um, unite anymore. It's oppressed peoples of color, of you know, uh, non-heterosexuals. This, this is the big push of the LGBTQ you know, alphabet. Uh, that's, that also is a kind of intersectionality. So there you go. Okay. Hopefully that makes sense. It, it does make sense. So basically we're all oppressed. Unless you're not in, me, because, you're not oppressed because I'm a white male, so I'm not you're, supposed you're to be. You're at the top That's right. of the structure. Yes, and so what we're seeing now is this whole notion of beauty inverted, right? Yes, and so we've taken what in the past because pretty women are oppressors of non-pretty women. Of course, I you mean see. yes, of course, and then a larger woman who's on the cover is being used, is she not, mm-hmm. by Sports Illustrated to subvert the paradigm exactly. that what was beautiful is now not beautiful. You're very wrong about exactly. what's beautiful. And you must accept this. I mean, listen, you're a former Miss Alabama. So 1994. 1994 former Miss Alabama. Um, have And you're still on the board, yes, of the, uh, um, the Alabama, Miss mm-hmm. Alabama mm-hmm. pageant. Mm-hmm. Have since 1994 have the standards changed? Yes. Okay. How so? But not in the way that you'd think. Okay. Um. So we're let me a, a little aside. Largest donator of scholarships to women in the country. So we're very proud of that. However, what has changed is that we took away the swimsuit competition. Really. So. You know, this happened probably three or four years ago, and it came from Miss America, not from the state boards. Are they connected in any way? They're all connected. So we are subsidiaries, essentially, of the Miss America organization. And so they came on and said, okay, we're going to change. We're going to go Miss America 2.0, and we're going to remove the swimsuit competition because some girls may not participate if we have the swimsuit competition. For me, that was a positive because it was the first time in my life as a college student that I thought, oh, I'm going to work out. I only have to be on stage for 30 seconds, but I'd like to be healthy. Yeah. Um, my dad was excited that I took my health seriously. Uh, so when the news came out that we were not going to do that anymore to be more inclusive, there were a good number of people that were like, what yeah. is that? That's one of the things we're known for is talent. In swimsuit. Gotcha. And this this idea, though, that beauty has changed, that is one of the ways that that has changed. Now, you know, intellectually, doctors, lawyers, um, accountants, you name it, women are really getting after it as far as school is concerned. But that is the area and and the strongest way that beauty changed was no more swimsuit. We're going to divorce ourselves of that, of what we were, for this new notion that we want to be inclusive. Is there a, is there a pressure like for, to include transgenders or to include, you know, someone like is on the cover of Sports Illustrated? Is there a pressure yes. for that now? That's there. I, I think that it would be, I wouldn't say as much in Alabama because they're just, I don't know if we're old school. I really don't know why, but I've looked for it to change and it really hasn't. Not yet. Uh, not yet. I'm sure that it will. But you will. think it's happening in other... It definitely like, is happening. Okay, yes. so let's say in New York or California, yes. there's those a would be that. the places where so you'd see Illinois. So the Leah Thompsons, Illinois. you know, the, the guy, and let's be clear, it's a dude. It's a dude. It's a dude. It's a dude. Who was not really a very good NCAA male swimmer, but he says, you know what? 
I can kick ass on the female side. Yeah, why not? And he did. He did. And he did. So uh, we must only be a a hop, skip, and a jump away from there being a, a dude who says, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I want to be Miss Alabama. I want to be Miss America. No, we're we're not far away from yeah, that. Yeah, so at all. we're we we've got to be, and you're seeing this already in Europe in a big way. But again, these are examples of intersectionality. Mm. This is intersectionality because I want to invade your space and pervert it. And I I think of um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, who I I love. Um, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the Nobel Prize winner, the Russian novelist, Nobel Prize winner um, for literature in uh, sometime in the 1970s, I think in 1970, but Solzhenitsyn was a believer. Not a believer the way, you know, uh, um, Americans are used to believers. I mean, this guy comes off, came off like an Old Testament prophet, you know, even had the beard for it. I mean, Solzhenitsyn came off as like an old crank, you know, who was condemning and railing against um, everything. Uh, the 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 winsome crowd in uh, in America would really struggle with Alexander yeah, Solzhenitsyn. Absolutely. He uh, he called a spade a spade. But what's interesting is that Solzhenitsyn, you know, who served um, I think a decade in the Gulag in the in the Russian prison system uh, under Stalin, um, he was released. I think once Gorbachev, you know, came along. Excuse me, not Gorbachev, Khrushchev um, came along, and uh, there was this kind of general thawing. But Solzhenitsyn said the communist program is to destroy your social order. Uh, another way of putting that is the Marxist agenda is to destroy your social order. So we want to invade your space and pervert it. And Satan, uh, I think this is a you know a, a book I would encourage people who are listening. Um, to read. It's a little bitty book. Uh, it's by Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand was Romanian. He was a Lutheran. He was a pastor. And um, he was arrested and spent, I don't know how many years in all, but I know he was, he was in for eight years, was released. And then like two weeks later, they arrested him again. Uh, and I don't, so I don't know in all how long he was in prison. But Richard Wormbrand, he lived through the Nazi occupation of his country and then the communist, the Soviet, the Russian occupation of his country. And he was imprisoned. And he wrote, a, he's, he's most famous for his book that's called Tortured for Christ, which is now being made into a movie. Uh, and I'll be very interested um, to see it. But he also wrote a book called Satan, excuse me, Marx and Satan. You can download the PDF for free, you know, off, um, off of line somewhere. And Richard Warren won't mind because he's now dead. But um, in that book, it's a profound book about the satanic elements of Marxism. Um, and they are satanic. So much of what we're seeing in the culture is satanic. Um, it Not just merely we want to have rape, which to me is bad enough. Excuse me. We want to have um, abortion just in rare instances of rape and incest. No, they, they want to celebrate. They want to glory in um, abortion. They love abortion. They love killing kids. They do. I mean, it's a sacrament at their satanic altar where they worship. And Richard Warmbrand would say it is utterly satanic. Yes. And he tells stories of his, he, he refuses to go into much detail because he says it's far too painful for me to revisit it and I'm sleepless. Um, for days on end afterwards, but he just tells a few stories 
of um, you know hinting at Christian women being raped by the um, uh, the communist guards because they knew that was the the worst thing they could do to them. That would be the greatest affront to them. And he talks about being, you know, uh, strung up and beaten and beaten and beaten. And the men who are beating them, him saying to them, have you no mercy? And he says, and they would cackle, cackle and beat him and beat him more. And um, that they enjoy doing the things that they did. And he says, and one of the things that they did to pervert the gospel is knowing we were in prison because we were we were Christians. As he said, they they made a man they knew to be a priest to serve communion to all of the prisoners of urine and excrement. And they under threat of death and beatings, they made every Christian eat it and drink it. And Warmbrand's point is, again, this is what Satan does. He he's not an original thinker. He doesn't create something new. He only perverts God's creation. That's what he does. He defaces it. And so this is what intersectionality does. So it's like this. Uh, this is maybe a way of putting it, Amy Beth. It would be like saying, um, all of a sudden the left says, it's natural to walk on your hands. There's a wave of new studies that come out and then talk about how walking on your hands is actually healthy and good for you. Um, there are numbers, uh, a number of news articles that are published that speak of important people in history who could walk on their hands, uh, road scholars who walked on their hands, presidents who walked on their hands. There would be workout videos for walking on your hands. There would be denunciations of walking on your legs. And before long, the useful innocence, and that's what Ludwig von Mises called them, the economist. He didn't call them useful idiots. He called them useful innocence. Uh, that is to say, the people within the culture who kind of mindlessly regurgitate whatever they're told, they would begin repeating it and begin believing it. You know, walking on your hands is the normal, natural thing to do. And you'd say, nobody would fall for that. How many people have fallen for the idea that a man could be a woman? I would have said to you that I would have said to you 10 years ago that it would be impossible to convince I mean a whole society that this made any sense at all and we're not there yet whole society doesn't think that but there are elements within our society who really do think that so this is how insane that it becomes so it's an inversion of God's creation um, and it's an inversion of the natural and normal purposes that are to be celebrated of men and women when do you think that you first noticed that this was happening in culture? Uh, um, 30 years ago, yeah. <laughs> a very long time ago. Yeah. And um, when I was studying, when I was in graduate school and I'm, I'm studying Marxist um, ideas, um, when I'm studying um, Russian history, European history, which brings you into contact with Marxism in a huge way. American history doesn't. I mean, other than, let's say, the Cold War, which takes you into a discussion of Russia or Vietnam or Korea or something like that that are Marxist. Um, but American history, by and large, we've been quite insular you know, from this. We've been very well insulated um, from it. But I've spent so much time studying that um, that you begin to recognize it when you see it, when certain things begin to pop up. And of course, I was noticing this in education. I'd probably say I mean, listen, I'm just, I'm just throwing a number out there, but probably a full third of my professors in, in graduate school were probably Marxists. 
uh, I would say easily a third of the stuff that I was assigned to read was Marxist in one form or another. Now, sometimes it could be assigned critically, like, like you, you need to read this because this stuff is messed up and you need to know what these people are thinking. But um, in other words, those ideas are not dead. They're still very much there. And, um, and we're seeing it in a very big way. How long do you think it's been in the church? Um, you know, in liberation theology, which has been around for a, for a long time, I, you know, it's hard to assign absolute beginnings. Mm. You know, where did it really begin? Where did World War I really begin? Well, with the assassination of the Archduke Ferdinand. Well, now it really kind of has deeper roots. It goes back to the, to the Franco-Prussian War of 1870, but really it goes back to the Napoleon. You know, so you can just keep going. So finding an absolute beginning, I'm not sure about. But I would say that it has picked up steam and become more mainstream in just the last 20 years and the last 10 in particular. Mm-hmm. So that, for instance, um, a, a biblical example, let's, let's use a biblical example of intersectionality so that we can show what that looks like. You know, intersectionality is, think of it as a lens. Again, it's just another term an academic-sounding, boring term for um, cultural Marxism. And cultural Marxism is a lens through which you are meant to see the world, just as we believe as Christians that the Bible should be your lens through which you, you see and filter the world. They want to replace it with a cultural Marxist lens where everything is interpreted through that lens in a very cynical way, by the way, uh, I might add, and it leads to slavery. It doesn't lead to freedom, whereas scripture, you know, the Bible itself does. And so what what we're about is trying to give people a Christian worldview, Mm -hmm. help them understand how it applies to every aspect of their life in the way they should be interpreting the music they're listening to or the movies they watch or the, you know, the schools where they send their kids or the way they do business. Um, it's, it's the antidote to cultural Marxism, but let's lay that lens, Amy Beth, let's lay the lens. I've, I've brought a Bible for this purpose. Let's lay the lens of cultural Marxism down over a particular story. And that story is the story of David and Bathsheba. Now, I also have a couple of chess pieces here because I want to sort of illustrate the problem. I was set about to write an article on me too. All right. I, I said, I actually sat down to write this article about a year ago. I did write it. And as the way th- some of these things tend to go, I was waiting for the moment to drop it. Um, but, but the election was dominating the headlines. COVID was dominating the headlines. And he had this January 6th crap, you know, that was, that was out there. So it didn't ever seem like the quiet moment. And soon I forgot about it. So I had this article that was sitting out there. Then came Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. And I thought, here is my moment. I'm going to drop this article now. And so I'm thinking, here's me too. I have to move this piece into place in order to attack uh, what I believe is wrong with me too, because I think it's cultural Marxism. But I realized that that this piece was um, would immediately be attacked because we have what is becoming fashionable I don't think most people listening to this podcast will know this, but their pastors will know this. And I will predict that in a decade, 
it will become the interpretation of the story of David and Bathsheba. And that is to read the story as a rape story, that David raped Bathsheba. So I was aware that, you know, if I'm going to say that the story of David and Bathsheba is the answer to me too, it's the biblical answer to me too, that I was going to have to deal with this issue of, um, you know, of, of this rape story. So I, that means, I, I mean, I had to protect this square. You know, before I can put this piece here, I have to deal with this, you know, with this rape issue. And, um, and so I write the article. This <laughs> is so funny. I write the article, and I'm envisioning my, you know, dealing with this as just as a footnote. You know, yes, I'm aware that, um, that there is this, you know, currently fashionable trend of interpreting David as a rapist. But when you're writing like this, as I say in kind of my chess analogy, you're always anticipating the, where the attacks will come. And so the footnote becomes, you know, a paragraph, two paragraphs. And soon I realize it's an article unto itself. And maybe before I publish the article on Me Too, I need to first lay the groundwork mm-hmm. by publishing an article on the rape story. And that brings us to the rape story. Now, I have my Bible here, and I have it marked um, with some kind of notes. And um, here is the way the story, it's, it's very brief, the, the portion that is significant. I will read it here. It happened late, with the, by the way, this is Second Samuel chapter 11. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And uh, one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now, um, that story, is there anything that in a straightforward reading of that text that you come away and say Bathsheba was raped? Not at all. Had you ever heard that that narrative before I mentioned it to you? I'd never heard it before. Okay, so... To my point, you're an intelligent woman. You're out there, and you're 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 engaged, and you're 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 following the news, and you had not heard this. But I bet you, if you were to ask the pastor of your church if he's heard this, he would say, "Oh yes, yeah, I've I've heard this." And it's it's starting at an academic level, and it's starting to trickle its way down into the mainstream. So hence, the reason I say that I predict that in a decade this will be a dominant, maybe not the dominant, but it will be a dominant. Um, interpretation from many, many pulpits because it's what is now being taught. So when I first encountered this um, a few years ago, I, uh, I thought, okay, because you know, Christianity Today, which has become quite woke, re- published a piece in which they called it um, a rape story. And then, um, no surprise here, uh, suddenly the guy's gone, you know, completely out of my head. Um, the... Um, the, the former, gosh, I did a conference with oh, him. Oh, um, Russell Moore. Russell Moore, excuse yeah. me, Russell Moore. Um, 
Russell Moore um, has started pushing this in a big way, and it was because he, you know, he had a conference about sexual abuse and the Southern Baptist Convention in 2019. And so this really, this, this, this took off in a big way there at that convention because they were saying, look, we as Christians have to come to terms with the fact that David was a rapist. What? what? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that, I've never heard that before. So among the, uh, among the, the, uh, the inventory of David's sins, which are substantial, um, that he was an adulterer, that he was a murderer, uh, that he was at various times a prideful man, we now, they tell us, should add to the list of sins that he is a rapist. Now, I would say to you, now, now f- first of all, let's just consider the text, that nothing in a straightforward re- reading would lead you to that conclusion. But see, what they would say to you is, and I will explain, by the way, why this is intersectionality, why this is a Marxist interpretation. Bear with me. But I would respond to that by saying, first of all, nothing in a straightforward reading leads us to that conclusion. That's the first thing. Second of all, the idea that the author was bashful about, you know, mentioning rape, that he was just trying to be very, you know, careful in the way he couched it, wasn't careful about calling David an adulterer. He wasn't careful about calling him a murderer. He wasn't careful about recording Mm. this story. Right. So I... I don't buy that um, for a moment. Um, and by the way, it was a pastor um, who said to me um, that that you know that's kind of the way that he he hears people you know framing it. He he doesn't buy that it's a rape story, but he says you know to listen to them speak, they would suggest that it was. It's not in here because the writer was bashful. Well, let's consider this. Second Samuel, in all likelihood, was written by the, the same author. First Samuel was written by Samuel, perhaps up to chapter 25. Sa- Second Samuel was, um, Second Samuel was um, probably authored by Nathan. So here we have in Second Samuel chapter 11 is the story of David and Bathsheba, and all we need to do is to turn the page and we come to 2 Samuel 13, and it's the story of Amnon and Tamar. Yes. Now, that is a rape story. So for those who want to say that the author was bashful about it, he sure wasn't bashful about it two chapters later. Two chapters later, he discusses in detail how Amnon raped Tamar. Yes. And it is a rape story. So it isn't a case where the Bible is misogynistic and just thought, ah, you know, rape's no big deal. Actually, the Bible says that a rapist should be put to death. Right. So the Bible actually speaks on rape more strongly than we do. It calls for the, it calls for the death penalty um, to the rapist. And the Bible is very familiar as to what rape is. It addresses rape. It calls it out. So what is the likelihood that an author who authored two stories— um, of sexual encounters that he calls one rape and he's too shy to mention it in the other one. I mean, do you buy that? I don't buy it. And right there, let's press pause. We'll take a break and we'll be right back. This is the Larry Alex Taunton Show. Welcome back. Okay. So we're in the book of Samuel. Yes. We're talking about David and Bathsheba, but we're also talking about this notion that David was a rapist. But then two chapters later, we talk about the story of uh, Tamar. 
and they do address rape, could we pause? Because I have a question for the people who are saying that this is rape. Yes. There's a word in the story of Bathsheba and David that said she went to him. Yes. And so how can we work around that word, that volitional word, that she went to him and suddenly, suddenly, this is a rape story. Well, they would point to, so David sent messengers and took her. They would, they would, if they would put the emphasis there um, versus the, and she came to him. But there's nothing to suggest that it was physically overpowering. And I, I, what I think is very interesting to demonstrate that this is a new interpretation, not a, not a historic interpretation. I checked 20 20 um, commentaries that are pre-2000. Okay, I think, I think the most recent of which was probably like 1984. Most of the ones that I was looking at are, are classic commentaries from centuries past. Mm-hmm. You know, like Matthew Henry and yes. John Gill and Spurgeon's Notes and you know this kind of thing. Not a single one of them addressed the issue of rape. You know, meaning that wasn't on the table. That just wasn't an issue that they were addressing. Um, now, what was debated among them when it came to Bathsheba was the degree of her guilt on the rooftop. Was this, was this some kind of you know, effort to entice, um, or was, was the invader really David in viewing something that was meant to be private? And most of them, by the way, again, if there's an effort to say the biblical commentators were misogynistic, and that they were just, you know, going to be all these male chauvinists who were just trying to put all the blame on Bathsheba. They don't. They, they treat Bathsheba quite respectfully, and they're not real clear on her guilt in that instance. But they are unified that she committed adultery too. Now, again, I wasn't cherry-picking these Bible commentaries. I just went to every old one I could find. I went through my own library where I've got, I don't know, probably, I probably got about six or eight and then I went through, you know, online, so many of them are available, and I just kept, so long as it was pre-2000, I was looking at it. None of them took the view that she had been raped. None of them even address it, you know, it, so it's not a narrative that they feel like they really have to dive into. So it's not a historic interpretation, unless someone say to me, you know, uh, you know, hey, there's the thus and such commentary, you know, written in 1700 that does say this. I'm not saying that there isn't a commentary out there that says it. Is there a church father who says it? Maybe. What I am telling you is, if, if there is, they are most definitely overwhelmingly in a minority. So this is not a historic interpretation. Where it seems to have gotten steam is that John Piper, on, John Piper, on DesiringGod.org, he replies to questions. Um, that he received some from somebody and somebody asked, you know, was 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 she raped or, you know, was this willing on her part? And he takes the view that she was probably she was probably raped. Now, Piper is not woke. Uh, Piper said a lot of things that I disagree with, but and I disagree with this. But this isn't because um, he was woke. It's because he was arguing that the story, you know, when Nathan confronts him, that the um, the story he tells, you know, the analogy he used of the little, you know, the little innocent you, would suggest that that Bathsheba herself was innocent. But again, I would say that Piper puts himself, um, he he's he's fighting up a hill battle there. Maybe not in modern times, but he set himself against the church fathers because none of them that I am aware of 
take that particular view. Furthermore, again, because we have in the text a story of rape, you know, two chapters later, that's unambiguous on the question of rape. So it seems odd to me that that he was trying to protect David from, so he wasn't protecting him from adultery. He wasn't protecting him from murder. So that strikes me as odd. Here's the interesting part, where why this matters to our discussion um, about intersectionality and cultural Marxism. First of all, I want to be clear that whether David was guilty of rape or not, it changes nothing in the biblical narrative. He was still a man after God's own heart. He was still um, a man that the Lord held up as a model for Israel, for all of us. Now, this is important that we bear this in mind. And I must tell you that David has been under attack for quite a while, but from legalists. They're legalists within the church. And it's my wife who pointed this out. I think she's, she's dead on with this. Legalists hate the story of David. And they hate the story of David because they prefer the story about people that they think did it all right. Yes, agreed. You know, the good guy who did everything the right way. And it just gets under their skin that God loved, it seems, and, and, and not just seems that he loved him, but that, that he called David a man after his own, own, own heart, that he's held up as a model for all of us to follow. And legalists hate that. They hate it because they don't feel like David did it the right way and they feel they're better than David. So that I've had friends who are Christians, you know, say to me, you know, uh, um, bizarre things about how David isn't somebody that we should really admire. Or, well, I, w- I will tell you that when you're saying that, I feel the need to back away from you a little bit because I'm afraid a bolt of lightning <laughs> might turn you into, I mean, because the Lord himself did say that of David. Right. Oh, yeah. Again um, and again. It, it, it's unbelievable. I'm just, I, your wife is right. So legalists hate they the hate story it. of David. Yeah. They don't want that story in there because they don't like his redemption. Or let's put it this way. If he's to be redeemed, they want him to wallow in his sin and be defined by his sin for all eternity. And that's what's interesting to me because a lot of people in the church these days, they want to define David not the way the Lord defined him as a man after his own heart and as a model for all of us, but rather they want to define him by his sin. And they want to remind you and David of his. So David has been under this attack uh, within the church for quite a while. But now we have, you know, b- being added to this, you know, this, this rape charge. Regardless, if, if he were guilty of it, and he isn't, um, it would change nothing in the biblical narrative about that. So I just want to drive that home. But why it matters and why it's an example of cultural Marxism is you see it is an, an, it is an effort to absolve Bathsheba of any guilt. You see, in the Me Too narrative, women cannot be held accountable for their own poor sexual choices. Um, therefore, we have to redefine the story in such a way that David is the aggressor and David is responsible for it. But let me explain to you where the cultural Marxism comes in. Most would agree with you that there's nothing in the story to suggest that David physically overpowered her. So what do you think they argue? I mean, I I can't, it's such a ludicrous. Well, think about cultural Marxism. I mean, cultural, and power structures. So, so he over. I mean, so where did this all happen? I mean, where's the cultural Marxism? Well, the, the the where it is here in this story is again, 
in the cultural uh, Marxist narrative, in the intersectionality narrative of male-female relationships, this is a patriarchy, and he is a powerful man, and the point isn't that David physically overpowered her. They would say that's irrelevant. He coerced her because David could not have a consensual, a consensual relationship between a powerful man and a woman is not possible. That's cultural Marxism. Mm. So um, they interpret the story in this way. They say that the point isn't that he physically overpowered her. The point is that he was a powerful man, and more than that, he was a king. So he's a male, uh, and she's a female. So there, right away, there's inequality, they argue. He's a powerful male. She's a female who doesn't have power, and he's a king, and she's a subject. So when he sends people to summon her to the palace, she has no choice but to come and you know, strip her clothes off and to jump into bed. This is, she has no volition. Uh, all volition is removed from her um, according to that, that narrative. And so what that means is they would say to you that even if Bathsheba consented to this, that it would still be rape because con- cons- uh, her consent was not possible in that kind of uh, um, um, uh, what do I want to say, that kind of power structure, hegemony as they call it, in that kind of power structure. It was unequal and therefore consent could not be given. But let's follow the, the logical path of that. That means that David, every once he became king, every relationship that he had with a woman, whether it was one of his concubines or one of his wives, and I think, what did David have? I think seven wives. I, th- I think that's right. Several. A bunch. <laughs> and he felt from the rooftop he needed one more. Yes. Just, just but one of more. Course. You know, just, just one more. Um, but he, um, the, the way that narrative goes is that a, a consensual relationship was not possible. So if we follow the logic of that all the way out, then we have to say the same thing was true of, I guess we could say that his relationship with Michael might have been consensual because she was the daughter of a king and he wasn't king when he married her. So, uh, isn't that right? He, he wasn't king when he married her. So, um, there might have been some co-equality of power in that. Otherwise, we would have to say that David also raped Abigail, uh, who he married. But they would interpret it, you know, as, uh, you know, Abigail, um, how could she refuse his marriage proposal? Therefore, we have to define that as rape. We would have to define um, Solomon's relationships with uh, with his many, many um, concubines as uh, in wives, as uh, all of them are instances of rape. Solomon might have been capable of a consensual relationship with the Queen of Sheba, you know, who came to see him because she had power and they're, they're, they're um, equal stations. So you see all guilt is removed, but um, guilt is removed from Bathsheba, not through um, um, confession of sin. Uh, it's removed from her. They would remove it from her because they would say she wasn't guilty of any sin in the first place because she was raped. And why was she raped? Because there was a power structure. There was inequality here. And so that's all, that is all intersectionality. That is all cultural Marxism. And it's extremely dangerous. Well, it's exhausting to think, (laughs) right? I mean, so everywhere you look, someone's out to get you. Yeah, exactly. Essentially. Um, I'm a victim forever. 
you know, so this is terrible. Yes. Um, but it is. I'm listening to the story and I'm looking at it through the lens now. And it is completely exhausting because you are looking for the worst in people. Yep. And that to me is unbelievably divisive and destructive, which the Bible tells us the enemy of our soul is here to divide, devour, and destroy. And that's the structure that they're asking us and trying to force on us. Yes. Um, and that's what bothers me so desperately about it, having infected the church and the vernacular of the church, is it's normal to hear about the patriarchy. It's normal and it will become normal, more normal, that this is a rape story and not a volitional story, even though he was the king. As a woman, even as a child, I told you off air, I knew, I knew that she did not have to go. So the idea that we're victims bothers me, and the idea that you're looking for the worst in people is terrible, because that's not the way we're to view. The Bible tells us to look upon others as better than ourselves, but not in the sense that we're a victim. Uh, so taking away responsibility and accountability for women or anybody who's different um, is very interesting because then who gets to be the power structure? Yeah, the you know, there are a couple things that are very important here. First of all, as you just pointed out, look at what it does to your reading of the Bible because what, what intersectionality does is it's a little bit like a pastor who whips out the Greek and Hebrew too much. <laughs> you thought that it said thou shalt not kill, but then he says, but the Hebrew. <laughs> and you're like, oh, wow, he just performed some kind of linguistic trick here. And what I thought it said isn't what it said at all. There are some pastors who do that, and they do it way too much. And it, it, it sort of comes with one of those warnings that goes across the bottom of the screen <laughs> that says, do not try this at home. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it's his way of asserting that what you thought you knew isn't what you knew at all. So, I mean, there are times when it's legitimate, you know, to look at the Greek and the Hebrew. Don't misunderstand me. But sometimes, you know, our translations these days are often hyper-accurate. And um, there's very little need um, to do that. But another thing that it does for you, it, it does to, to people, is it undermines their confidence in Scripture. Because a person reads this, they don't come to and shouldn't come to the conclusion that this is a rape story. And then they're told, oh, yes, it is. And, um, and all this is read into the text where it isn't. And what I appreciated about a lot of these old commentators, because I was reading them on a, a you, know, you know how it is, you start on something and you start down a rabbit hole. <laughs> right. And so when I go down the rabbit hole of the intersectionality rabbit hole that would make this a rape narrative, I end up in a house of mirrors where nothing is what it seems and where a straightforward reading of the Bible would get you nowhere. What you thought it said is not what it says. When I went down the rabbit hole of the old biblical commentators, I encountered all of these august, old, revered men whose treatment of this passage was so judicious that they were, were careful not to go beyond what the text said. So, for instance, when they dealt with the issue of her bathing on the rooftop, with the exception, I think, one commentary, which did not hold back in saying basically she was a slut, you know, on her rooftop. With that exception, the others were very careful. They would say, is this, is scripture signaling us here that she was doing something that she shouldn't have been doing? 
Probably not. Um, most of them seem to take the view. Listen, we don't want to push beyond what the text said here, but what we do know about Bathsheba's character, um, they would say, is that she proved to be a very faithful wife uh, and revered wife um, to David. Uh, she probably was a little overwhelmed by his fame and by um, flattered by the invitation of, of this man that she went to, to the palace. But they didn't portray her, you know, in, in terms that made her look like Jezebel or that made her look like Delilah. Interesting. Uh, they, dealt with, they dealt with her very respectfully. And to a man, they put the greater guilt on David in this story. I want to be very clear because David initiates the sin. Bathsheba isn't initiating it unless you buy into the idea that she was, you know, doing a striptease on the rooftop. And I, I don't. So, um, you know, David initiated the sin. So was he looking for it quite literally to begin with? No, he sees her and then his eyes linger and then he begins playing mind games and he starts thinking about what he could do. And then, you know, um, away it goes. And I love the what one Bible commentator, the way he put it. And unfortunately, I can't remember who it was who said this. It may have been in Kyle Dalich, but I'm not sure. He said, this story is recorded in the Bible to show us, the legalists, by the way, would hate this. This story is recorded in the Bible to show us what the very best of men are capable of when they give themselves over to sin. So the legalist wants to say to himself, well, I would never do that. And the Bible is saying to you, we consider David to be the very best you've ever produced on earth apart from the virgin birth and, you know, God becoming man. He's the best of your species, and look what he did. Look what he was capable of doing when he gave himself over to his carnal natures, his carnal nature. Um, that's what the story is recorded there to show us, not to show us what bad men do, is to show us what good men, good men um, will do. And we all know this about ourselves if we're honest and we're not, um, you know, we're not legalistic. Uh, and prideful and um, self-righteous. And that, it, that's a self-righteous reading, you know, those people who want to say that, you know, that, that, that want to reinterpret David. So I think that's very important that we understand that you can rely on your Bible to mean what it says that it means. Now, does that mean that there aren't times that it really needs some serious unpacking, you know, that, for us to understand things? Of course. Uh, uh, Genesis 1 and 2 are a perfect example of this, um, that they do require that. But this isn't one of those instances. This story is, is, is what it appears to be. David sees her. He invites her to the palace. She comes, and by the way, why is it always assumed? See, we read back into the text, you know, because we know the story. So we read back into the text things that actually aren't in the text. Why should we assume that, that his invitation to the palace, that she was to interpret this as an invitation to his bed? How is she to know? She's, it's highly unlikely that David told the palace guard, go get that Bathsheba chick because I plan to bed her. <laughs> go get her and bring her over. I guarantee you 
because he was hiding his sin. I am sure that he cloaked it under something else. I want to commend um, Uriah's wife. Right. I want to put a pin a medal on her, you know, for being such a model. For, you know, who knows what he said. But that the, the, the palace guard went over there. Those who are interpreting it as a rape story, they say this was intimidation. This was, you know, soldiers who were coming to seize her or put her to death. The text doesn't say that. In all likelihood, they went over and said the king would like to see you. What for? I have no idea. But he's asked you to come. Okay, let me do my hair and I'll grab my purse. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> so. right. Well, and I think there's two things here that are that strike me is number one, um, that when he was confronted with his sin, you, you said this off air that I love, there's redemption. I see so many good for, things off air. You, you, you do, I mean, we just walk around and, you know, we should just do that with our phone. So there's redemption, but there's redemption for both of them. And I think that's important um, after the godly sorrow when he was confronted by Nathan the prophet and immediately sensed what he had done was wrong and, well, when he unpacked the allegory, but the redemption. Because yeah. if you're dealing with cultural Marxism, there is no redemption. No, there isn't. That's a great point. The, the problem with the cultural Marxist model is, and the problem with social justice, and I want to really emphasize this, Social justice is not Christian in any way, shape, or form. And by that, I don't mean that we aren't in favor of what we might call being just in social you know, environments or circumstances. I'm talking about the buzz term. Social justice is Marxist. It is a Marxist term for the hijacking of guilt, of guilt for the transference of power. I hijack your guilt or let's reverse it. You're a woman. You make me feel guilty because I'm a man. I'm a patriarch. I've oppressed you. And because I have some kind of vaguely sentimental Christian ideas of equality, I begin to think, gosh, you're right, Amy Beth. I, what can I do? Well, you know, you can give me the keys to the car. You mean whatever. Right. Um, it's, it's for the transference of power. It's, uh, it's for the transference of political power, for cultural power. It's the handing over of um, reparations for, you know, a, uh, a slavery that was more than 150 years ago that you had nothing to do with, I have nothing to do with. I, I don't even know that my own ancestors had slaves. I, I doubt it. I think they were probably quite poor sharecroppers. But regardless, whatever they did, I, I don't feel guilty for it because I didn't have a thing to do with it, you see. So that's what, that's what cultural Marxism is about. And so when that ideology, when, when social justice or Me Too or um, you know, intersectionality, these are all expressions of intersectionality, um, enter into the church, it isn't about redemption. It's about retribution. And there's a big difference. Let me emphasize that. It is about a people, social justice warriors don't see themselves as messengers of God's grace, of his redemption, of his hope of um, eternal life, they see themselves as agents of retribution. That's what it's all about. And that's not what the church is about. The church is a place to come to when you're broken, which we all are, um, to find God's grace, to find healing, to find hope. You go into a, so you go into a church that's infiltrated with that crap, and, um, and you're going to find yourself, you know, um, loaded down with, with more burdens that you can't possibly bear. And so we're going to end on that note. Um, I hate that we are at the end of a very intriguing discussion. Um, but thank you. 
Um, this has been the Larry Taunton Podcast. Thank you for being with us today. We will see you next time. Turn out the lights. The party's over. They say that all. Ladies and gentlemen, we are grateful for the standing ovation, but there will be no encore for today's performance. Please exit the building in an orderly fashion. Thank you. Honey, can we leave now? <laughs>